everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are answering your questions about cetaceans in honor of World Whale Day. Plus breaking news! So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Three hours before we recorded this, a week before this podcast comes out, uh, the Center for Whale Research did announce that there was a new calf in Southern Residence. L125 was sighted this week. Uh, her or The calf's mother is L86, and this is her fourth offspring. L86's name is Surprise. Which is <laughs> That's cute. Um, they... Um, the first sighting was actually from Sea Lifer Foundation, who are part of the photogra- photogrammetry research. So there's a fantastic drone photo of this calf already, which is mm-hmm. adorable. Um, and then the center, once that was reported, the center went out and got the official photos to verify and get the population census and all of those things and give the calf her official number, L125. It's so exciting. I know, calves. Um, and this is this brings the population of the southern residents to 75 uh, for the moment. The sighting that happened this week, um, they also spotted the most recent other two calves, J57 and J58. And nice. they both looked like they were doing their normal baby orca things. Yes, looking as expected. That is excellent news for... A Wednesday in February. Um, yeah, yeah. Hooray, um, hooray. I think, yeah, they also spotted, oh yeah, they spotted, spotted all three pods. So everybody's been spotted as of February. Nice. Um, that's not a full population count no. confirmation, but it, they saw them. So that's the Southern so residents awesome. are around. Hooray. Good job, Southern residents. Yay. Now onto the show. Yes. Oh, sorry. That was your line. <laughs> uh, now let's dive into the mail. So we are very grateful to everyone who sent in questions for our mailbag episode. And we're going to start. Our first question comes to us from Daria or Daria, probably Daria, Daria Blackwell. And Daria's question is, are orcas the only cetaceans with so many ecotypes? Daria, that is an excellent question, because the answer is yes, which it's very rare, I think, for people listening to our podcast for an answer to be so simple. And I will go into it a little bit more, because when you dig, it's more complicated. But truthfully, yes, orcas are the only cetaceans with so many ecotypes, a grand total of 10 ecotypes last time we checked. And the reason that I can answer that so categorically is because... Orcas are the only cetacean where their subspecies or different populations or whatever the today's definition of ecotype is are called ecotypes. (laughs) That is why this is such an easy question to answer. And thank you very much, Daria. There are, as fans of the podcast know, I have some thoughts about (laughs) the nomenclature of cetaceans, especially when it comes to uh, speciation and subspecies. It's very, very complicated. And it gets more complicated the more that we learn about these animals. And defining a species is n- never an easy thing to do. And it becomes even less so in, in modern times. So 
they're not the only cetacean with like the most diversity of populations. There's lots of cetaceans with with lots of different subspecies, like the blue whales that we covered in our blue whale episode, and Lindsay had to go through all of them. <laughs> bottlenose dolphins also have a number of different subspecies and actually species mm-hmm. of bottlenose dolphins as well. Humpbacks have completely genetically diverse populations uh, spread throughout the world. But as for ecotypes specifically, orcas they're the only one so daria yes well i think there are probably are other like different populations that could use the term ecotypes yeah but it's really just orca Mm -hmm. that commonly are referred to as different ecotypes whereas other ones they just use different terminology even though yeah like saying that like different bottlenose populations are different ecotypes wouldn't be wrong it's just not in our reading yes correct Mm -hmm. yeah and then when um whenever this DNA test about type Ds comes mm. back and they make a decision, mm. then it's going to get even more complicated. Um, True. Whether or not they've been announced. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to need, like, an interactive PowerPoint by that point. I agree. <laughs> um, and I'm also, like, I know this is at least the second episode that we've brought it up and it's only been happening for two months. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really upset that they didn't get Greg from CSI to do it because he can do <laughs> DNA analysis in, like, three hours yeah so with a fancy montage yeah exactly and he would have had a quipping joke <laughs> yep. uh, and then we would have had the answer to the question that we've been waiting for forever well we'd have it by the end of the episode because that's how csr exactly. works because that's how it works and then grissom would make a pun and everything would be glorious Indeed. anyway that's the other podcast that yeah. we did this <laughs> anyways um yeah Our next question comes from Grant Pollard on Twitter, and they asked, uh, why are orcapods such fussy eaters? They tend to specialize in a handful of food sources. And yeah, that's true. Orca are pretty picky eaters, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Some of it is based on their evolution, so they evolve to take advantage of a certain ecological niche in their environment where they live. So that's like biological evolution and ecology. But then there's also the evolution of culture, and both of those take a lot of time. The culture evolves so that the they exclude other food types, and then um, change can take a long time. So like cultural transmission, uh, for example, a new feeding technique like surfing onto the beach for seals, you know, sometimes a few of them try it, and sometimes it gets um, adopted by the whole population. Sometimes it's just by a certain pod or a certain uh, subgroup in that population. Um, And then it's also obviously limited by geography. Like they can only eat food that is available to them. Um, But also a lot of like the ecological part of it is um, avoiding competition. Um, So like, yeah, they're taking advantage of different niches. So in the, in our local example, the Southern residents eat fish, whereas the, um, the Biggs killer whales eat Uh, marine mammals and i mean who knows exactly how that originated but the end result is that they can overlap and not be competing for food directly so yeah it's a for a whole bunch of reasons like like usual Mm -hmm. um there has been that uh recent article that we posted on our facebook a couple weeks ago about um one of the bigs family groups was seen i think in 2018 or something beaching to catch mm-hmm. a seal but it was it's only been one family group yeah has been seen and it was only like a handful of times so how that it's not like they were watching blue planet unless they were who knows, <laughs> who knows? Um, <laughs> watching david attenborough going 
these majestic orcas in Argentina. <laughs> um, and they thought, well, maybe I could try that. So you never know how those things, like, that's a huge example of convergent evolution if it was to happen yeah. and be something that was actually seen off of our coast. Um, sorry, my chair's squeaking real bad. Um, actually seen off our coast moving forward, mm. but we don't know. It might have happened just a couple of times, and then they decided that it wasn't worth the risk. Yeah, or also, it might have our been... beaches are much more rocky. Yeah, or it might have been <laughs> like a... <laughs> it might have been a fluke <laughs> or an accident. Uh... <laughs> um, where like they, you know, they tried it and it worked, but then they tried it again and it didn't work, you know, and then that's exactly. kind yeah. of it. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it was like it just even an accident of mm-hmm. just too much enthusiasm. Okay. Next question is from Lottie O'Neill Photography on Instagram. Which whale species has made the most successful comeback in the spe- in numbers since whaling has been abolished? Um, and the answer for this is humpbacks, which is why we call it the humpback comeback, not <laughs> just because it's catchy. <laughs> um, so records suggest that in the 1830s, there was about 27,000 whales, but after heavy hunting by the mid-1950s, only 450 remained. So the ban of commercial whaling in 1986 led to a strong recovery. And now the population in the world is thought to be at about 93% of its original size. By taking away the threat of hunting and having safe spaces to survive and thrive, humpback humpback numbers in many areas have recovered, as we've seen in the Salish Sea and further up north of BC as well. Lots of humpbacks are here, Mm -hmm. and they're nice. Yay, humpbacks. Good job. Mm -hmm. Yay! Okay, our next question comes to us from Target Master to Bears Castro on Instagram. I think I said that right. And uh, Target Master asks, could orcas rescue humans in the middle of the ocean? This is an excellent question because this is kind of, you know, every young child's dream when you start to learn about dolphins, at least it was mine, right? <laughs> like you start to learn about dolphins and I am, I cannot in good conscience sit here recording this podcast and say, this has never happened mm-hmm. with dolphins. It has actually never been recorded to happen with orcas. So that's kind of the short answer. Again, it's going to get more complicated. That's the theme here. There's never been a recorded instance where an orca has saved a human out in the middle of the ocean, but it has happened with other species of cetaceans. Predominantly, and when I say this, it's like a handful of times in the history of every shipwreck Mm -hmm. and every near-drowning ever, a handful of bottlenose dolphins and sometimes other species of dolphins have rescued humans Mm -hmm. and then jumped over rainbows (laughs) and you've been in a Lisa Frank poster. Or a Madeline Lincoln book. Either. Either or. The problem with that idea is if you are in danger in the ocean Mm -hmm. do not count on a dolphin or an orca or a whale or anything to come and save you yeah a little mermaid well we've talked before about like we haven't found all the like populations of blue whales in the ocean and blue whales are much bigger than people like yes the ocean is very large aside from all the other issues but like that's that's part of it yeah Yeah. And if you look at the number of shipwrecks and other sorts of water on water accidents that have happened in the world, when dolphins have been present and Mm -hmm. have not 
rescued people. Nope, just pointed and laughed, probably. (laughs) Probably. That grossly outnumbers the times that, like, the odd dolphin has decided, eh, cool, I'm just gonna go play with that human, and I guess I'll rescue them at the same time. I have no idea what went through the dolphin's mind when it happened. So I can't lie on this podcast. Yes, in very rare instances, a human has been rescued by a dolphin. Never an orca that we know of. And I'm pretty sure if that was to happen, everybody that it happened to would be like, yeah, shouting it from the rooftops. But also, just don't count on it. Many, 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 many people have died and dolphins have been right there and done nothing. Um, Because it's not their job to rescue us. It is our job to be safe on the water. Mm -hmm. So please be safe on the water and uh, don't expect a dolphin or an orca to rescue you. Yes. Also, don't swim anywhere near them. Or put your boat near them. Anywhere. It's our job to rescue them. Yes. So the next question comes from Amanda. And it is, what is the smallest cetacean? And then I had a sub-question for that. What I was thinking about cetaceans in the shower. Which is a thing that happens to me. (laughs) My coworker Silva always does that too. She's like, this is my shower thought this morning. Oh yeah, my boss and I think that all the time. She's like, well I was lying in bed stressing about work last night i'm like uh-huh, uh-huh. me too <laughs> moving on um and my, so my sub question was what is the smallest tooth whale that's not a dolphin so the smallest cetacean is a vaquita which means little cow and no. it is about four and a half feet long and 120 pounds and exists only in a small area in the northernmost part of the upper gulf of california in mexico and it is incredibly endangered um as we discussed in our porpoise episode ages ago Mm -hmm. but still incredibly endangered um due to gillnet fishing uh outside the porpoise and dolphin family the smallest tooth whale is the dwarf sperm whale which was my guess because when i think about tooth whales that aren't dolphins all i can think about (laughs) is that sperm whale and then i remember beaked whales exist but they're bigger than you think they are and belugas and narwhals sperm whales always want to think of first uh dwarf sperm whales grow from eight to nine feet and uh, weigh between 300 and 600 pounds. That's all the information you're getting about those until Nicole's promised dwarf and pygmy sperm whale podcast episode. Because they are adorable and awesome, and that's coming soon. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, our next episode, or our next episode, our next question comes from Dorothy, who asks, what is the average number of offspring a female cetacean has in her lifetime? So we've talked a bit before, we talked about twins and conjoined twins uh, in our second episode, so like years ago at this point, Um, and cetaceans almost always, like vast, vast, vast majority of the time, have one calf at a time. Um, The answer to this question is super variable because it depends on a bunch of factors that are really um, different in different species. So first of all, it depends on the age that the females reach sexual maturity, like how old they need to be before they can start having calves. Next, it depends on the gestation time, which I think we talked about maybe in our Mother's Day episode last year. Um, oh. was about, you know, can be anywhere from like 10 months to two years, basically. Like it super depends. Um, also weaning time. Some species of cetacean really only nurse their calves for like a year, maybe 18 months, and sometimes they nurse them for, like, three or four or five years. Who knows? Yep. A super long time. Um, and then also, it can depend on 
how long of their life they are reproductive. Some species of cetacean are known to go through menopause, uh, including orca and shortfin pilot whales. Um, so they go through menopause like humans do, and then the females stop being reproductive at a certain age. So Basically, you need to take that time and divide by the number of calves they can have, and that's like their max. In the case of southern resident killer whales, it's about five. Um, but I'm sure there's other animal, other cetaceans that live longer and could have way more calves, especially um, if they do less nursing. Um, yeah. Like Big Mama. She's had, what, seven or eight now? She's a humpback whale? I think, I think she's so. had eight. I think she's had eight that we Yeah, know we know that she's had eight. Yeah, so it could be more. She wasn't successfully... Um, not mark recaptured, identified mm-hmm. uh, as a returning species until I think her, and then we started counting her until yeah. 2007. Right. I can't remember right off the top of my head, but she could have had many before that. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's an example of uh, like humpbacks only nurse for less than a year. Yeah. And mm-hmm. southern residents are the opposite end of that spectrum, like yeah. three to four. So yeah, humpbacks are basically on a cycle of like. Go to yeah. Ho- go to Hawaii, get pregnant, come back. Go to Hawaii, have a baby, come back. Yeah, go to basically Hawaii, like get, every get two pregnant. years on average, or like is like the ideal. The other thing this can depend on is also like how um, how healthy the population is and how healthy their food supply is and all that. Um, because if there's not enough food, either um, they won't get pregnant because there's not enough resources, or the pregnancy won't be successful, or the calf won't survive long enough to be really counted so there's also Mm -hmm. that part of the equation not this most happy part of the equation but also counts towards how much a female individual contributes to the reproductive population of her um species yeah i was just thinking about granny again and Mm. even just um surprise l86 who just had this calf just Mm -hmm. today or whatever ended up being um, she's 30 and this is her fourth calf, if you think about that. And right. I don't think we have any firm knowledge of how many calves Granny had, because that's too complicated. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. we did not live the <laughs> amount of time that Granny did. But just thinking about how long she was known for mm-hmm. and didn't have a calf, which was mm-hmm. 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so even if she's not, wasn't actually 105 when she died, if she was 80, that's half of her life at least um where she didn't give birth but she was the matriarch to an average of 90 whales so she was living an important life but not reproducing so it's a complicated thing and it's and none of this none of this is taking into account individual genetics obviously and you know like that sometimes there just might be like an individual who who had a really successful birth rate then all of a sudden something weird happens or just the genetics where it just doesn't work out so Mm -hmm. totally yeah like it's variable yeah it's not like she turned 40 or 60 and stopped being able to give birth because she turned 60 it could have been something else happened she was too busy being the boss it's yep. um, probably what it was. Our next question comes to us also on Instagram from Magnolia of the Meadow, which is a beautiful handle. And Magnolia asks, how many miles does the average orca swim per day? This is a wonderful question because I was able to find two published studies, which we will share in the show notes, which actually have tracked this so we have true 
data Yay. about, you know, the individuals that were tracked. So that, again, you can't always make gross <laughs> generalizations about populations and the average worker and how far they swim. But with these individuals who were satellite tracked, we can we can see how far they swam, which is great because if you don't go onto Google Scholar and start looking at hard data to answer questions, if you just searched this in Google, you would find a very big variance <laughs> in the answer to this question. So National Geographic estimates that orcas can swim about 40 miles a day. SeaWorld says they can swim about 140 miles a day. And another website I found called Green Planet says about 100 miles a day. And none of them quote anything, which shame on you, National Geographic. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> so looking at the cold, hard data of a uh, killer whale who is tracked in the Prince Regent inlets and also another nine orcas that were trapped on the east coast in the prince edward islands of the southern or sorry not the east coast yep i got confused because there's different prince edward islands these are the southern ocean prince edward islands okay. not the atlantic ones whoops <laughs> so looking at the orcas who were actually tracked in these two studies in the regent inlets the killer whale in one day, so this is in kilometers because I didn't do the math, and I know you asked it in miles, Magnolia, so let's, you know, do your math of, like, dividing by two and a half or whatever it is. Um, this killer whale in the Prince Regent Inlets traveled 96 kilometers a day, plus or minus 45 kilometers. So each day, sometimes they traveled, you know, 96 plus 45 is like 140 kilometers and sometimes 40 kilometers. So it depends. Um, but they could basically, you know, the, the longest distance that they traveled was 159 kilometers plus or minus 44 kilometers in one day so a maximum of 252 kilometers in one day that was the largest that was seen how long was this done for this was done for the summer season mm -hmm. and then the other study of the nine in the southern ocean that was i'm pretty sure that was a month long study mm. and they calculated of those nine in the southern ocean they calculated sort of like the average per day and it was 82.7 kilometers a day mm. of like the average length so sometimes they moved over 4,000 kilometers yeah <laughs> so, but split between each day's average and the average of each of those nine animals yeah 82 mm. 82 kilometers a day um which is a big range yeah so well they got Lots of things going on. That's true. Well, and I feel like this, like, again, I love looking at data because I'm a big nerd. But also, <laughs> this is like if you have a smartwatch and if someone was just to take, like, your average steps, mm. you know, a week that you were feeling, like, the first week of the new year when you're feeling refreshed and, like, ready to hit the outside world and get your steps and you're feeling motivated versus, you know... Three weeks later, when you're you're on your period and you don't want to get off the couch, <laughs> it snowed. Yeah, I just yeah. I looked at my steps from this weekend and it was two hundred and eighty nine. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't leave my house. Or you know, there's a global pandemic uh -huh, in the first that. few weeks of the global pandemic, and no one goes outside. It's just it goes to show how important 
data is mm. because if you took a subsection of like the well how much can the average person walk in a day and just looked at step trackers on like the first day of the pandemic we would assume that people were couch potatoes and never moved <laughs> so that's that's my summary of magnolia of the meadows question variable is the answer but lots okay our next question comes from val who asks are whales ticklish so first of all, to figure out if they are ticklish, we need to actually understand biologically what is tickling. So there's two kinds of tickling. There's that light, gentle kind that kind of feels itchy. It's called nismesis. And there's like the armpit or rib probing kind that evokes laughter uh, called gargalesis. Uh, that second one is much rarer and only humans and our closest primate relatives like chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans and maybe rats have been shown to exhibit it. Um, so mostly, I guess, we'll be looking at this uh, nismesis type of tickling, I think. According to Dr. Davila Ross, more and more animal behavior researchers are turning to the internet to look uh, for signs of animals being ticklish because they can look through large volumes of video footage, which can then be systematically assessed. A quick trawl reveals an eclectic array of animals, owls, dogs, meerkats, penguins, even a camel and a dolphin that appear to noisily react when being tickled. Um, the team's especially interested in tickling because it allows them to directly compare the responses across these really different species. So they are looking to gather and compare as much tickling material of as many animals as they can, uh, <laughs> which is fun. Um, sounds like a fun job. D Dr. Michael Oren, an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience from Georgia State University in the US, thinks that there might be a simple explanation to why there's such a wide range of animals respond to tickling. So he says, I suspect that it might be an artifact of what the mammalian nervous system is like, in the same way that touching or stroking or grooming animals can be pleasurable to them without being possible for them because within their species they don't have the same hands and fingers that we have. It seems that there is a commonality across mammals of pleasant feelings evoked by touching. And also in the show notes, we will link to some videos on the BBC of laughing rats and gorillas, and they are great. Highly recommend. It's the most amazing video. So our next question is also from Grant. Um, and he wants to know, at some point, a male juvenile sperm whale leaves their birth, part, birth pod and starts migrating to the poles to feed. And he's never been able to find out why that is. Do bull sperm whales drive them away from their pod when the juvenile gets too big? That's a fascinating question because I don't know anything about sperm whale family behaviors. So... When they are not breeding, adult male sperm whales live on their own. Females and their offspring gather into pods up to 20 members. So while females generally stay in the same social unit and around tropical waters for their entire lives, young males leave when they are between 4 and 21. That is a huge range. Yep. <laughs> and can be found in bachelor schools composed of other males that are approximately the same age and size. Um, that sounds like a gang. Just thinking them. Jets and the Sharks. Um, uh, pun. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> males... That is like pretty typical for a lot of cetaceans it is. as well. Yeah, yeah, especially, yeah. As males get older and larger, they begin migrating towards the poles. As a result, bachelor schools become smaller and the largest males are often found alone. That's how sad. Large, sexually mature males in that are in their late 20s or older will occasionally, occasionally return to the tropical breeding areas to mate. 
uh, lots of tooth whales follow similar behaviors like belugas and bottlenose. I think have we talked about bottlenose male gangs before, or so I've just been in passing about how bottlenose males are horrible. We talk about it recreationally a lot. We have some feelings about bottlenose dolphins. Yeah, they're not all rainbow jumpy and rescuing you from your burning ship. <sighs> Female sperm whales reach sexual maturity around nine years old and when they are roughly 29 feet long. Um, at some point, this growth slows and they can produce a calf approximately once every five to seven years. After a 14 to 16 month gestation period, a single calf about 13 feet long is born and and then although the calves will eat solid food before one year of age they also continue to nurse for several years which is a continuation of what we've been talking about all episode uh females physically mature around 30 and 30 feet long which time they stop growing so this is the comparison between females and males because females stop so this is Part of his question was, like, do the big bull sperm whales drive them away from the pod? And Mm. that part, at least, we know not to be true because bulls aren't living with their their moms and aunties by the time that they would be big enough to drive them away because they become kind of solitary as they get older. But there's it's fascinating when you look at the difference of sexual dimorphism between females and males because, yeah, like Lynn just said, the females stop growing when they're 30 years old and 35 feet long. But the males keep growing. Actually, they kind of stay the same size like because they're growing at the same rate as females until about 30 years old. And then they keep growing for another 20 years until they're over 50 feet long. (laughs) Yeah, which is what I was like. Puberty is prolonged and may last between 10 and 20, which makes sense when you look at the bachelor group ages as well. And then although they sexually mature at this time, they don't actively start breeding until their late 20s and then but this is the question that ties back to dorothy's question is when did they stop breeding like males Mm -hmm. because what is the purpose of them growing into their 50s if it's not to compete for a mate right and like do they grow until their 50 mate for the last time and then just die because they're done i don't know i think we need more sperm whale episodes yeah i still have many questions well, and that is the last question for today, though. Oh, no. So I have so you. many questions. <laughs> Quick, answer them right now. <laughs> well, thank you to everybody who did send in a question. We love doing these mailbag episodes, and we're going to have another one in a few months for Orca Month in June. So get your Orca questions ready. And, of course, we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode, so please visit our website, whale-tales.org, and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line and ask us another question. Mm. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. You can also head to our website to subscribe to our podcast, check out our merchandise, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read nearly 1,000 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the stories, not tales like the animals. And of course, if you have seen a citation, we would love to add your story to our library. So please click the share link on our site, contact us on social media, whaletales.org, or email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. We will be back at the end of next month. Thanks, everybody, and have a whaley great day.